Welcome back. My guest this week is Joseph Green. Joseph is a professional storyteller. He's an award-winning spoken word artist, and he's also somebody in sustained recovery. Joseph, hands down, is one of my favorite people I've had on the podcast. He is incredibly talented, and what he is doing through his life experience to now help people to help the youth, to help people with mental health issues, to help people in the workplace is truly incredible. He's not only insanely talented as a poet and a spoken word artist, but his voice and what he does with his voice to help people is the best part about it. He's also featured in the upcoming film, Tipping the Pain Scale. Big shout out to Trip Wiley for helping me get Joseph on because it's, it's truly amazing. I think y'all will all fall in love with what Joseph is doing um, after you listen to the podcast. Before we get into the show, if you're somebody like me that has struggled with their sleep on and off throughout their life, it's time, to you to, it's time for you to try and fix that and reach out to the team at Engineered Sleep. Engineered Sleep is an amazing company. They work with their clients on their individual needs to find the best mattress for them. And they've done some really cool stuff. Like make, they make custom mattresses for biggest celebrities and huge, you know, uh, sports figures. So, but if you're somebody like me that just needs a king or a queen mattress, they will hook you up with the best mattress possible for you. Incredible quality, great price point. So go to their website, engineeredsleep.com, use promo code LIVE10, or reach out to them via phone, use promo code LIVE10, you'll get 10% off your order, or if you're in the upstate of South Carolina, go visit them in their showroom in Greenville, South Carolina, mention the podcast, use promo code LIVE10, and you'll get 10% off your order, so that's engineeredsleep.com, promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order, but most importantly, You'll get a brand new mattress, an amazing mattress. You'll start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Joseph Green. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. First off, man, how's your morning going? It is a beautiful day here uh, in Northern Virginia. My morning is always, you know, post-pandemic. It's this process of being able to wake up a little less anxious because I know I'm not going to be in traffic for an hour and a half to get to D.C. Um, I get to have a two year old that most mornings I wake up at like 430 and I go and get him and bring him in the bed. And so like when I wake up, wake up at seven is like it's to him and, and, and his mother. And, you know, my oldest son is here now. He lives with his mothers in New Mexico during the school year, but I have him over the summer. And so it's this process of the little one wakes up, goes and gets his big brother, drags him downstairs. We do the little breakfast routine, um, watch some sort of Amazon Prime show, tiny little cars, and I have to fight my two-year-old to get him dressed. But it's there's something beautiful in the routine. And to to be able to sit back and reflect and really like sincerely say like, I love this part of my life mm -hmm. is uh, it's something that I, I honestly never thought would be something I would love. I never, I didn't want to have kids. So like this whole family thing, every morning that I get to do it and I don't have to rush it. It's such a beautiful thing. So I had one of those mornings where I didn't have anything first thing in the morning. So we got to take our time. I got to walk my son to the daycare and then he got to play with flowers and all that other stuff. Those little things that just 
you, that, like, to help you remember what, that, you're, that you're blessed. I had all of that this morning. So like little rituals that you don't even yeah. know are rituals, but yeah. like what make your life enjoyable and like have meaning. You you said you never thought you might want to have kids or have <clears> this family. In your story, you talk a lot about your family and how yeah. you grew up. What was life like for an eight, 10 year old Joseph in the household? You know, I remember being joy filled, like a, a, a joyful person filled with joy until around eight, nine, 10, right? Like I can't remember a problem that existed really that that like that stuck that grooved enough deep into the record that it like it's still something that plays in my mind now so it wasn't until this realization that my family didn't operate the same way as other families operated and this is around the time when my father is starting to get out of the military so my father's military and i presumed as a young person that his absence from our life on a regular basis was because he was away doing military stuff. That's mm -hmm. how it was explained to me as a child. Your father's overseas, your father's, you know, uh, on duty, your father, da, 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 da. And a good chunk of that is true. But as you start growing up, you start realizing, you know, certain things like it wasn't that my mother and I and my brother couldn't go with him into those spaces. My parents just didn't have that relationship where you know other kids talk about being military brats and traveling around and around the world and we never left northern virginia um and so that was what i thought was normal and then when we retired when he retired we moved off base and then he still wasn't around and he was he worked two jobs and not because we were like needing of money it was just his way and then when he wasn't working he was drinking and and living his life and um in 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 the throes of what a lot of people who serve in the military find themselves um and that's when i started kind of backing away from the world mm -hmm. um and hiding in activities if that makes any sense like it was i i was doing theater and i was doing after school clubs and i was theater i was i was uh in SCA, I did martial arts. I was doing all these things, but it was so that I didn't ever have to stop and be with myself. And so that that was the beginning of me really feeling anxious mm -hmm. and 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 depressed and but not having any language for it. So this is all in hindsight, right? Like as a child, it was just like, I don't feel right here. I have to do something. Yeah. Um and as an adult who has been given this language to understand what it was that was happening, I, I get back, I have, a, I have a newfound compassion for that version of myself that I used to very much dislike. Yeah. Long answer, but yeah. You know, and you talk about the first time I think you realized your dad was an alcoholic and you're picking him up with your mother from maybe a second DWI. Yeah. Can you talk about your perspective or your outlook about how your dad changed in that moment? Yeah. I, you know, I sp I've spent a lot of time 
traveling and and doing that poem that you're pulling that story from uh and i don't spend enough time making this next statement and i just wanted to 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 do that real quick because i want fathers and and mothers and parents in general to understand this much uh my father is one of the best men i've ever had the pleasure of knowing and i'm blessed to have existed long enough that we survived his mess and then we survived my mess <laughs> to be able to get to a space where we had a mutual respect and understanding and i was able to 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 get this this one fundamental point if he would have known better if he had been taught better if he had come from a different world he would have done differently right and so i just like i'm going to tell the story of my family but i just i want that to be like very clear to people and for young people who are still dealing with that process of like trying to understand you know what happened to their parents you know of a parent who died of an overdose or suicide like to like the they're wrestling with that why it's not always as simple as willpower and wanting to be a good parent sometimes it's exhausting the tools that you have and just realizing at the end of the day you weren't given enough tools so that being said um my mother is also one of the strongest people i've ever met and i did not think that of her when i was young i thought that she was um quiet and um and sort of hid from conflict and and you know to come to find out she herself was dealing with her own mental illness and was going to therapy like but she couldn't tell anybody because she would go during her work hours and she just had a break she had a break and as many people do, like some people have a miracle moment of I need help. And then some people have that breaking moment of I'm going to have to do something different because we're insanity now, right? We're doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same results. So mm -hmm. in her mind, the thing that needed to be done in that break was you get to compartmentalize your life. Your children don't know what you're doing. There are people at work don't know what you're doing. I'm the only one that has to live with all of your mess. So I'm going to break that wall down and I'm going to take your son to pick you up from jail so that he can see who you are. And maybe you can see in his reflection who you actually are. Mm -hmm. um, and it worked for him. For me, it became this moment of up until that point, everything that I learned about drugs and alcohol was, it could be summed up in moral failing, right? Uh, you know, I lived, at that point, I was living right outside of D.C. This is the 90s in D.C. I had family in D.C. They had gone different directions than my family had gone. And I didn't know anything about systemic racism. I didn't know anything about redlining. I didn't know anything about uh, the drug war. I didn't know anything but what I saw on television. And that was Black people in D.C. on crack dying and killing each other. And so I, I lived in a space that was primarily white. And so what we thought in this space was those poor people, those people, why won't they fix their lives and make themselves better? And now my father had become one of them, right? I, I see my father coming out of the jail and he's just shoveled. Now my father's military. I've always known him as military. I can close my eyes and still see him in uniform. But to see him come out 
like that, mm-hmm. um, looking like one of them, uh, it it began a deep-seated resentment because, again, this was not a professional intervention, right? There was no therapist there. There was nobody to say, hey, we need to make sure that this young person has a way to express themselves and their emotions and what's happening. Yes, this is a real conversation and they need to see their father in this way, but we need to give this boy some tools to deal with this emotionally. And so, again, in retrospect, I can see all of this, but in the moment, I just got mad. Yeah, embarrassed. Yeah, mad, embarrassed, um, and there's a if you if you if you follow comic books at all or, or just even like comic book movies you know you know there's a big storyline of superman dying mm-hmm. right and there's this iconic image of his body broken and torn and then there's the the flag waving over top of his grave and you know that's what it felt like it felt like somebody who couldn't be hurt who couldn't be wrong was wrong and if he'd been wrong about this what else was he wrong about and if i am of him right if i'm his child then what does that say about me and you know for anyone who's been in early recovery as i have it's not a particularly pleasant time you know it's it's a mourning for a lot of people right you're mourning this thing that you had in your life that was your friend that you thought helped you cope, that you thought was the answer to your problems, that you thought made you an enjoyable person and nice to be around, that got you through the hard times. This thing that you were leaning on is gone. And just like any other agitation, it's this constant buzzing, this constant noticing that something's missing. And you want to think that you'll stop drinking or whatever, and you'll, you know, you'll be a good person, yeah, cheerful and charming and people will like you. And that's not really what happens. And so with the absence of a family counselor, with the absence of my own therapist, without having any of those tools, my father just drugged his, dragged his way through his first couple of years of sobriety. But those are my last two years of high school. And so I left the house, you know, thinking that he didn't even care enough to talk to me about it when I just don't think he could. Yeah, he didn't know um, how to. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll let you take the question from there, but that's, 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 that's that in a very large nutshell. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that you said, Hey, maybe it didn't work for you at that moment, but it worked for him. Cause from there, which you said the first few years of sobriety, I think are hard for most people, but he went on to become sober and it has, from what I know, 20 plus years of sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. His, his recovery has been, um, remarkable. And I think what needs to be stated, I think, because I know that this is heavy on him, right? You know, the, the, the longer you're, you're out of it, the more you are able to reflect and the more you, you know, and it's not like our family separated or broke up. Like he's still been in my life. Um, his sobriety, his recovery is what allowed for space for me to get into recovery. When I think about when I decided to move home from New York, like I couldn't have moved into a household where there was drinking, right? That wasn't an option. Like that wouldn't have been the healing that I needed, but because my father was sober, my mother never really drank at all anyway. 
like I was able to go back to this space that was now a safe space and and interact with a man who, you know, still wasn't, you know, the nicest guy in the world. But, you know, he was capable of providing and listening and he helped me get my credit straight and he helped me, you know, in those first real steps of like being employed again. And like he was there for all of that and um, got me a car and, you know, me just just things that he wouldn't have been able to do if he hadn't found his sobriety and his and his recovery. And so this is a and we're talking a 10 year span of time. Right. So 18 to 28. Um, It's 28 when I moved back home. And so and that was just the, you know, the beginning of my recovery, which has gone up and down and left and right and all the other jazzes. But like still there, that first real foundation was was possible because he was patient Mm -hmm. and because my mother was patient and she kept us in touch with each other. And she made sure that we knew, even though we didn't quite have the language, that we were we had more in common than we thought we did. And so I noticed, you know, out of the side of my eye, you know, like if he was able to do it, then so so should I. Like yeah. if I if I associated my downfall with what he was capable of doing, I should also be able to associate my recovery with what he was doing because he was he was doing it. So yeah, he was um, he was an, an enormous inspiration to me in that space. And you <clears throat> you say the you know the first two years were your last two years of high school and you build up some resentment, you know, you know, other things going on in your life and you go off to college. Where in those 10 years did you start using more alcohol, experimenting with more drugs mm-hmm. where you yeah. started to go down that path? Yeah. So interesting thing about my story. Um, I did not drink drug or smoke anything until my sophomore year of college. So I skipped all of that in high school. In high school, I was the president of the Youth Alcohol Drug Abuse Prevention Program. Mm-hmm. So I was the the popular kid that got invited to all the parties. <laughs> um, uh, so it, 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 was, it was a case of sobriety by hate, if that makes any sense. And then sobriety by fear because of what I was taught in those programs and in the system and the way the world was back then, it wasn't sobriety by choice. It wasn't sobriety celebrated. It wasn't sobriety um, with tools like meditation and yoga and exercise and eating healthy as a way to deal with pain and anguish and all that other stuff. It was, um, I'm not drinking or doing drugs because I don't want to be like those people, not because I actually have something figured out in my life, um, which directly affects my philosophy around youth programming now, but we can get to that later. Uh, the, the, the 19, 20, 21, 22, I was a typical college student, which I would say is somebody <laughs> who drank and partied, but did not associate that with anything other than this is what I'm supposed to be doing at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. So while you may have been like, if you put it on a chart, like how many drinks do you have a week? it would look like I had a problem. To me, I wasn't doing anything different than anybody else around me. It was a game, it was fun, it's what we were supposed to do. We suffered through the the work and the school and the da 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 so that we would be able to do these things. And what happens is that life happens. I dropped out, I became stressed about that. I had a job that you know, looked like it was, I was going to dead end. I was working in a warehouse um, and 
I started using drinking as a means to cope as opposed to just a means to, to party, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's where I first start seeing it as regulating my mood, right? I'm using it like, you know, Zoloft. I'm using it like, yeah. like doctors use medication to try to help people with mood disorders. And uh, I'm also a performer with an anxiety disorder that had never been diagnosed. And so I'm using it to be able to get on stage and do poetry. I'm using it but, you know, I'm just I'm associating it with the event. Right. It's never like, all right, I have a problem, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to drink this so that I can get up there. I'm going to suffer through it like I made it part of the the ritual of being a poet, of being an actor, of being a performer. And. What eventually happens. Especially if you have a proclivity for addiction in your family, in your blood, in your DNA you lose control, you know? So I, I, I think around 24, 24, 25. Um, so I, I went to VCU, dropped out of VCU, worked with a theater company for three years, stopped doing theater because I didn't, I wasn't enjoying it or either I wasn't sober enough to do it in the way that I wanted to do it. I don't remember. Um, but I was now working at a furniture store and doing kind of poetry on the side. It was a small scene in Richmond, open mics, things of that sort. But uh, eventually I, I met a dude from New York and he was like, hey, you got some talent in this. Let's go on tour. And I was like, go on tour. It never even like entered my mind that was a thing that I could do. But apparently there were people who were poets that would go to colleges and bars and things of that sort and just like, you know, pack up a bag and go. And so we put an album together. We went out on tour and I ended up living in upstate New York. Um, and that's when now I'm using drugs and alcohol to cope and I'm in like a desolate place that's like unpopulated for like four months of the year yeah. because it's a college town. And my best, I'm working at a bar, I'm a bartender in like the most popular local bar and, you know, the local drug dealers are my friends because that's where they come in to do their business. I'm helping them do business. I'm getting free drugs and da 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 da. And like all of a sudden I'm missing shifts. I'm getting kicked out of apartments. I'm, you know, I'm staying up three, four, five nights in a row. I'm, you know, coming in to work a shift just to get enough cash to buy uh, 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 um, enough drugs to stay awake until the next time I have to work if I remember to go into work and that's when it with all the art and all the poetry and all that other stuff just kind of it just went away yeah. until um my my miracle moment i guess yeah. and for me when you said you got invited to go on tour i would think that would kind of be a, like a really awesome moment for a lot of poets like that's kind yeah. of an accomplishment no it was i mean it absolutely was i, I want to be you know the reason why these things are able to last in people's lives as long as they do is because we've been fed the misconception that addiction looks like the dude on the street with a bottle and a bag and no place to live. Right. And my father was an active addiction and rose to the highest rank of a, 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 un, um, a, a non-commissioned officer could in um, in the military and then got out of the military and got a six figure job working for the government. You know, he was in active addiction that entire time. Right. When they got him, yeah. when he got a arrested, he was wearing his suit from his six, uh, six figure job. 
And so there was joy and there was success and there were women and there was like all of these other things that you can check off as like, oh, this means I'm doing well in life. This means I'm doing well in life. This means I'm doing well in life. And so the tour was like, oh crap, I'm 24, I'm young, I'm doing this art thing. And I want to be very clear, like tour is not like, uh, what's the live nation? Like I'm not being booked in like, you know, <laughs> We, we were, we went to, we got booked like eight or nine colleges, you know, some of the shows, there are a hundred people, some of the shows, it's like five people who just kind of randomly walked through the, the coffee house. But, you know, it was, it was um, an extraordinary thing to have the privilege to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that, man, that moment, I imagine youth and naivete were my my privileges but um <laughs> it was it was it was it was it was great but you know at the end of the day it's 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 hard to do anything at an at a high level for a long period of time when you are supporting yourself your mental health your body with fuel that is poisoned yep right and um, I'm trying to do something where I'm performing with my voice. I'm trying to do something where I put, or you can just tell from the way I'm speaking to you now, like when I perform, I put all of myself into yeah. it. You can't sustain that where you're drinking and getting high every night. Um, and then, yeah. And then it cracks and you think that it's everything else, but the thing that it actually is. Yeah. And so there's nothing left in your life, but you, and the addiction and you're like oh well process of elimination mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe maybe you're the problem you say this and it really resonated with me when you say drugs and alcohol aren't always the problem they're the solution and then what we come to find out that solution just brings more problems yeah yeah this um it was probably one of the more revelatory moments in my own life uh, because, you know, when you are in this space, you, you, you tend to surround yourself with people who also do these habits. Right. And it's a lot easier to see someone else's shortcomings than it is to see yours. So like, I saw this reflected in people I was dating. Like I have one particular mm-hmm. partner that I can remember very clearly being able to see like, wow you're drinking the way you're drinking because you've been hurt because you've been traumatized because you've been through things. And every time I try to bring it up that it may be something that you want to work on or deal with or pull back from you attack. Like I'm trying to take away something you love. Right. And that's because it is right in a twisted way. Addiction is a form of love for something that is that's killing you and for me when i realized in my life that in in the the line in the poem drugs and alcohol are not the problem merely the wrong solution is that as i got deeper into recovery and 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 that led me into mindfulness and that led me into buddhism and that led me into meditation and that led me into yoga and that led me into understanding that my work as poetry wasn't just about writing poems to get people to clap for me but it was a necessary thing that i needed in my life to get my emotions out and then starting to work with young people and seeing that reflected you know young people who would come into my space and be like i smoke weed every day and then you know they start coming to the poetry club and you realize that 
they're starting to replace some of what they were hiding from by smoking weed with this practice of performing. And then they're making connections with other humans in this space. And they thought that their whole life is going to be spent in a basement in a cloud of smoke. But now they have friends and they have joy and you're not asking them to to, to lose something without giving them something to put in its place. Yeah. So the problem was feeling disconnected. The problem was the trauma. The problem was the undiagnosed mental illness. And for a lot of people, the easiest thing you can get, and this is funny, I, I, Darren Waller in the movie, he um, tipping the pain scale, he put it so eloquently. Someone put something in front of him and said, this will make you feel better. And I wanted to feel better. Yeah. And that's how it started. And I think too, like alcohol, it's the most, un, or it's the most I say self-prescribed medication for alcohol and depression there is. And it's celebrated. Yeah. Right. If you if you there, I can I can go on to Netflix and find 30 movies in 30 minutes where it's somewhere at some point someone says the line, I need a drink. Oh, yeah. I've had a hard day. I need a drink. Oh, my God. Uh, I, my heart's broken. Let's go and get wasted this weekend. Um, it is. It's almost. Conspiratorial, <laughs> like, yeah. like, like to the point where it's like this can't be just an accident, right? Like the idea that like every main character in every movie ever when having a bad day is like, man, I want to smoke weed or get high or get drunk or get messed up. Like that's, that can't, we can't be that simple as a species. Yeah. That has to be intentional. Um, and I don't know either way, but I do know that I've seen way more movies than I've seen therapists when I was in high school. Sure. <laughs> right? It's almost seen, brainwashing. Yeah. And it, it is. I mean, it's, it's, we don't want to admit because I think we have this, you know, individualism, this, uh, this, uh, this thing about ourselves. I don't know if it's a Western thing or maybe it's just human nature, but this idea, like we don't want to think we're being fooled by anybody. We refuse to believe that we are being influenced by anything than what's going on in our own minds. And that this thing that I'm doing is utterly and totally my choice. There's no way I could have been led into this. And I've done marketing. Yep. <laughs> like, Some ways we I, are. Like, I, I know. I, and, and my poetry in and of itself is a form of emotional manipulation, if you will. Like I'm trying to invoke an, an emotion out of an audience so that I can then get them to want to do something that hopefully is good for them. But ultimately, there are way more people who understand the science that don't care about you than there are people who understand the science of of human behavior and are actually trying to get you to do good things. So yeah. what was your drug of choice at that time? Uh, at the height it was cocaine. It was it was cocaine and alcohol. And it, it was the, the combination of the two may seem really weird. But I had another realization the other day. So, so right now I um, I take Vyvanse for ADHD and um, uh, a form of medication. The name escapes me for um, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And someone asked me once, like, hold on, you take uh, upper like uh, a stimulant for your and then you take something to calm your anxiety. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know how that works either, but it does. Yeah. Right. Like the the way I am now, it's not about being right or wrong. It creates the greatest value in my life. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I feel like instinctually I was in this back and forth self-medication of an upper in this space and a downer in this space. Mm-hmm. And also for anyone who's ever done a stimulant, um, cocaine, uh, especially 
your tolerance for drinking goes through the roof, right? Because you're 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 metabolizing things a lot quicker. It's like having the the healing powers of Wolverine, who like has to drink so much to even feel it, right? So you're you're and then all of a sudden you think you're a drinker, and that was another thing that happened to me. Like I'm drinking whiskey, like I'm some old like bearded dude from Canada, and uh, as soon as I stopped doing cocaine, I didn't stop drinking. But now that drinking problem became a monster because I thought I was this person with this identity who just had this drug problem when really um, it was so much more than that. Yeah. The team at Engineered Sleep is going to work with you to get the best mattress possible for you and your family to get the best night's sleep possible. Use promo code LIVE10 and you'll get 10% off your order. So go to their website, engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order. Or you can give them a call, mention the podcast, or go visit them at their showroom in Greenville, South Carolina. But most importantly... Get yourself a mattress that fits you so you sleep better at night and have more energy and more production on a daily basis. Sleep is the number one thing you can focus on for daily performance. So stop putting it on the back burner. Reach out to to the team at Engineered Sleep. Use promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order. And now we're back to the conversation. When did you meet John? From the poem? Yes. Talk Ugly? Oh, oh, um... Wow. Uh, I met John in upstate New York. John, John was, um, he was a regular at the bar that I worked at. Um, he was a musician, so they had bands at the bar. So he was in a couple of bands. Uh, he also created furniture. He, you know, these are, you know, the, the boys that are up there, the ones that are from the town that are still there, they can do 10 different jobs with their hands and they're masters at all of them because it's just how they were raised. And, um, he was also a big old hippie, you know, he, he, his, his greatest, one of the greatest achievements that I saw him accomplish while we were there was he opened a yoga studio, um, that we subsequently ended doing, uh, ended up doing a lot of drugs inside of, but, um, because it was like a place we had access to at night and yeah, he was just a, he was a, he, he was a, he was a good friend. He was a, uh, what's the word? A, a kindred spirit. Um, I felt okay being broken around him. And I think that's a thing that a lot of us who have friends in that space is not necessarily like I fully get along with this person or I believe in all the things they believe in. You will find <laughs> in, 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 in spaces where drugs are happening, free flowing, you'll have a uh, Democrat and a Republican sitting right beside each other, not caring about political stances because of what is actually in charge in this space. Right. So um, I don't know. I always wondered a lot of the people that I was friends with in that space, like would I have been friends with them if we weren't messed up all of the time? He was one of the people that I, I, I honestly believed that if we had met each other on the other side of this, that we loved art and creation so much that that would have been our our through line. And then and those are the conversations that I remember when we talked about music and I, you know, he's came and he supported the poetry that I did. And yeah, he was just a good dude. Like he wasn't my best friend in the world, but like he was someone that I loved. And as the poem goes to say, I 
I left upstate New York sort of with my my head between my tail, right? Um, Back to tail DC. between my legs. That's just, <laughs> that's yeah. um, as a lot of people do, right? Like, it's like, if I don't leave right now, I'm going to die. So yeah. I got to go. I had two weeks of like not doing drugs. And I was like, I, my eyes were open. I had nowhere else to live. I was getting kicked out of the last spot. I'm like, either is now or not. Um, but in that two weeks, I said a lot of goodbyes to people quietly. And I remember um, not being able to get a hold of him in, in, a, in a meaningful way. I think it was like, we saw each other at like a coffee shop or something. And I'm like, hey, I'm bouncing. Um, you know, I'll be back in whatever. I'll see you soon or something along those lines. And what got you know, back to DC? What brought me back to DC? Yeah. Like what was, so at some moment, I, you know, I don't think it was your big moment, but you decided to try and get yourself together. And yeah. Move back to DC. Yeah. I mean, it was a big moment. It was, um, it's, uh, there's, a band called Modest Mouse. Are you familiar? I'm not. Okay, Modest Mouse. They're um they're a great band. If you haven't heard them, you should hear them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they have a, a album that was out around that time called uh, "Good News for People Who Love Bad News," and on that is um, a song called "Float On" by by them. Sorry, <laughs> um, and at the at the height of my downfall if you will i guess uh i was living in a like a uh, i was renting a room and i had a, the futon mattress but i had an old computer like a desktop computer but it was on the floor and you know i would cop and i would go home and i would do drugs and by myself i wasn't a social drug person and i would listen to this album and one day while i was listening to this album i checked my email um uh, and in my email this is an email that I hadn't checked in a long time. This is not now where you check your email every 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, it was like an email from college that I had opened up, but it's the email my mother had. And I realized that my mother had been sending me emails this entire time. You know, a lot of it was like Bible verses and things of that sort that people, but like she was consistently reaching out to me. And I was sitting in this room listening to this music lamenting that I probably only had a couple of lines left and thinking that I was all alone in the world. And my mother reminded me in that moment that I wasn't. And so the decision to go back to DC was, it was the only place I had to go. Mm -hmm. Like if, if my parents hadn't stayed and, and staffed the, the lighthouse, if you will, I don't know where I would have gone. Um, and I was, I guess, this is, this is not like a statement to, to parents out there, like, just wait and they'll come back. Um, but I was, I was ready when I came back to make a big enough change that I was able to, to live with their rules underneath their, 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 while they helped me get my, my life together. So, um, that's that was yeah that was it it was the only place that i could think to go that i didn't have to pay to be because i didn't have any money yeah how long passed from the time you moving back to your parents that you got the call about john overdosing mm -hmm. like you know unfortunately so many do yeah it was a, it was approximately a year 
approximately a year. I, I came back 2008, 2009. Had you stayed and... sober that year? Yeah, I stayed sober from cocaine. Yeah. Yeah, I was still drinking, but I stayed sober from cocaine. My my interest into recovery, I've I've it took me a long time to realize that I couldn't um what's the term? white knuckle my recovery. Yeah. And so my first thing was like was environment. So it was like I left the environment. I didn't know anybody in DC that could get me drugs. And so I was still like a ball of wine a night guy, but I wasn't doing cocaine. I was working at uh Gold's gym, um, making smoothies at the front desk and like watching TV and movies when I got home. And it was just like this process of removing the habit from my bones, if that makes any sense. Um, but I, I, I got that call. And so do you want me to elaborate more on the story yes. after that call? Yeah. So I got that call and I rented a car. I remember that just because it was the first time I, I, I've ever rented a car. And that was like a big deal for me, like to be able to have the adulting skills enough to go and rent a car mm -hmm. and have a credit card to put down and all that other jazz. And I, um, I drove it. I drove it to um, upstate New York. And there's a thing that I say and I, I tell this story often on stage, but the, the 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 idea that poetry saved my life, and it it sounds like one of those things that you hear like a motivational speaker say, you know, on one of those YouTube videos. You know, it's it seems like a, a, a an empty platitude, uh, but the reality is when I was growing up there, and if you're an artist in any way, whether it's visually or write written or whatever you know that inspiration hits at the weirdest time and long rides where your mind drifts is one of the places where that inspiration can come. And I had this line that was in my head as I was driving because I was thinking quite literally about the last time I had seen him alive, mm -hmm. right? And how nonchalant I was in that moment and how you know, in retrospect, I wish I, I could have shaken him and I wish I could have exchanged like mailing addresses. And I wish I could have told him that he wasn't alone and that if he needed to leave New York and come down to DC and stay with my parents, I would make it work. I wish I could have, I would have said something other than what I said, um, which, you know, equaled the kind of goodbye you would give to a coworker maybe. Yeah. And I get up to the funeral and go to the funeral and there's a moment where going to the bar with everybody afterwards feels like a really good idea yeah my my problem is i know myself and i've never woke up in the morning and said i want to do cocaine right i've never woken up sober and been like let's do drugs but i know that if i start drinking that i'm going to want to do drugs yeah. and if i try to do the amount of cocaine and probably anything else you would have put in front of me that day that was equal to the guilt and the hole and the emptiness and the pain that I was going through, I would have died. You know, it's not the same as, you know, opioids or fentanyl where, you know, it, it's, it's, it's almost a guarantee, but I know having 
overdone it before in spaces because of emotional issues that you can OD on 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 cocaine and then you mix that with alcohol and you keep drinking you keep going so I didn't go to the bar I decided to go to the the hotel and I wrote what was the first draft then <laughs> like the six page first draft yeah of um what would eventually become to be known as talk ugly which is the poem you're referring to was this how quickly or long did it take <laughs> for you to start sharing your story? Yeah. You know, um, I want to find her. I, I, I'm still her friend on Facebook and I've been going around telling the story that involves her for so long, but I've never actually like stopped to be like, yo, <laughs> you're the person who like got me into this. But I, I was I was still I mean, keep in mind, like I've been a performer this whole time. Like I, yeah. I was doing theater when I was four. And so being in front of people wasn't um, something I was that was foreign to me. But I couldn't disassociate it for the first few years from drinking and alcohol and drugs and so on and so forth. So I I remember slowly dipping my toe into the scene here at New in DC. And what was really great about the scene at the time was that there were two big venues that were um, doing slam competitions. And there's a restaurant uh, here called Busboys and Poets. And there were four of them at the time. And there was an open mic at every night of the week at them. And so I'm young, I'm single, I don't have a kid at this time. And so I'm, I started to go and just sit in the audience. And then I started to sign up and then people started being like, oh, you're actually good at poetry. And so yeah. people started to talk to me more and I became part of the clique and da, 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 da. Uh, and then I got my first feature um, very about a year after John had um, passed away and I had written that first draft. And there's a such thing as the uh, poetry, the National Poetry Slam. I don't know if it's I don't think it's still happening now, but it's a national competition and cities send teams that compete in local restaurants and venues. And I got on the team from Richmond, and which is where I went to school. And there's a dude on the team who is also a person who is now in recovery, who took my six page version of Talk Ugly and he edited it down to a page and a half, which is the version that it is now. And um, I did that competition. It went great. It was nice to do it, but it was weird that it was four points. And so when I got back from that, I got my first solo feature, which is like at an open mic, 20 people will perform, but they came that day and signed up. And then there's a feature who gets paid like a hundred bucks or something to take 15 minutes. So I finally got my first feature. And that was like the gym that talk ugly at the top of all of my poems. And there was a woman in the audience who ran um, an after school program for foster students, for kids in foster care wow. that were going to public high schools who didn't have anywhere to go after school closed because they were in foster care um, waiting to be placed. And so she asked, hey, you know, these kids are going through all sorts of stuff. Would you come and share your story and do your poem for them? And that was the first time anybody had asked me to do that. And so I was still creeping on my come up to be like, how am I going to get famous? Right? Like, how am I going <laughs> to, you know, go viral online on YouTube or Facebook or MySpace at the time? Um, and, and, you know, get a verse on a Kanye record or something and like blow up. Like how, when is this going? Like, when is this going like that? I'm still creeping in the back of my head on that. And, you know, grace has its plan for you. And so I was I was brought into the space and I had been working with young people, kind of coaching a debate team that I was on when I was in high school and I was starting to get the bug. But that was still more, you know, uh, utilitarian. Like it was like I had a skill. Let me share my skill. It's not about me. 
but this was the first time that anyone gave me the idea that my story may be of use to the world. And then I found a whole new reason to be good at it, right? My dedication to the space became completely different when it changed from how do I get people to like me and clap for me to how do I get people to see me and see a reflection of themselves in me and and be inspired by me? And um, how do I destroy their cynicism as opposed to um, uh, placating and trying to get them to trying to say the thing that they like that, you know, like all the things that I'd learned as like trying to get booked and get an agent to be a performer, it completely changed what my goal and mission was in the space. And when that happened, I actually started getting being successful. I started actually having people ask me to like come and speak. And the more I did it, the more people just assumed that it was what I did. And my first major conference was um, the American Association of Addiction Medicine. And they, I was working in prevention at the time. And I was, I was uh, leading this event for young people that we were pairing up with SAMHSA to do. And I guess someone who worked there was in the audience. And they're like, oh man, this guy's an excellent speaker. You should keynote <laughs> our national conference. Um, and so I went down to Louisiana and you know, my first time speaking at a conference was like 2000 medical doctors wow. from all over the country. And I what just did my thing. I mean, like I can go, it's all, this is probably one of the few that are actually online, but like, I just did my thing. And what happens from that point is that, you know, you're at a national conference and if you do good, they all have state conferences and that all of a sudden I'm, I'm a, I'm a national speaker and, uh, yeah, it grows from there. There's a whole lot I can talk about in that space, but yeah, <laughs> it, it grows from there. You mentioned when every time you share sh your story, it mm -hmm. also saves, continues to save your life. Yeah. Is that because you're still having to remember or realize in yourself that where you came from, where you are, you know, the power of your story. One thing I think we both have in common, the power of stories are incredibly powerful. Yeah. You know, it's, it's us. It's, um, it's, um, how do you put it? It's a amalgamation of things. Uh, I think the one would be the the touch point, right? Um, someone said this to me once and I, and I hold on to it. And then they say, happiness is uh, a balloon tied with the string to your wrist. And every morning you wake up and that um, balloon is tied there and then something happens and it gets cut and it starts to float away. And your meditation, your mindfulness, it, it, it's what keeps the balloon coming back to you, right? Like something is always trying to cut that happiness intentionally or unintentionally. Mm -hmm. And when I perform, when I tell my story, but most importantly, when I'm listening, right? When after I get off stage, there's always a line of people who have been touched, not by me, but by the story. And it's not that they want to get close to me. They think they found someone who wants to hear their story because they saw something in it that reflected themselves. And in those moments, like I'm not even trying and the balloon is coming back to me. Right. And I'm, I'm being able to keep it closer to me day in and day out by doing this work and, and reminding myself of my place in it all. Not that 
this world is revolving around me, but that we revolve together and that when I am my best self, I create a space where other people feel liberated to be their best self. And that's probably the most important responsibility to me as a partner, as a father, as an educator, as a member of my community, as a black man, um, being an unabashed light that will flicker sometimes and then flame and get out of control sometimes, but is always aware of how I am uh, uh, affecting the space that I'm in and wanting to always affect that space in a positive way. Yeah. What, what are other things you do maybe on a daily basis to stay in your recovery or the best you can be? Yeah. Um, you know, let me first start by saying, because I, I, I know there's this, somebody warned me about this when I first started speaking, cause I was not part of the recovery movement or the recovery space. Mm-hmm. And there's this uh, archetype character of the recovery rock star, right? Somebody that is seen throughout the movement who speaks and gets to go to, you know, spaces that other people who are in their recovery don't get to go to. You're sort of like this ambassador of the culture, if you will. And I was fast finding myself kind of in that space and I, uh, I, I have to make sure that my life isn't about my recovery on a daily basis, right? Which is to say that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about recovery as this separate entity that I have to also invest in. My life is the thing that I invest in. So, um, the five to seven period of time, uh, it, I mean, there, are, there are times where I, it, it overflows, but five to seven, I'm with my family, right? Five to seven, it's pick the baby up. Um, when my uh, younger son is town, we go straight to like a playground or outdoor space. We burn them out. We have fun, we come back. Somebody cooks dinner. We eat dinner. We talk about the thing that we uh, enjoyed most in the day. We do that every time we sit down at the dinner table. Um, and then it's the bedtime routine, which for a two-year-old is, Ah, but um, there's still like this magic behind it. And, you know, my wife and I stay up for another hour after the kids go to bed. And then I do this thing where I go in each one of their rooms and I pull the blanket over them and I look at them. And then the last thing I see before I go to bed at night and, you know, there's something profound about your environment, right? When I, I am the marketer in charge of the input of the information in my life. So I don't surrender myself to the news. I don't surrender myself to YouTube. I don't surrender myself to negative spaces that will either begin a process of envy where I'm like, oh, I wish I was doing that. or I wish I was doing what that person was doing so on and so forth. Like I, I, I am proud to be a family man. I am proud to be in this space. And I, everywhere I go, when I do a presentation, the first slide is my family, right? Wow. It's, 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 it's because I understand that we can fall, right? Like I have no misconception that, you know, there is a smoky basement somewhere with my name on it, right? Mm-hmm. Just waiting for me to forget the blessings that I have and, 
and and either overreach or underachieve in my my position in life. And so it's it's about maintaining those things because when the storm happens, my father has Alzheimer's now, right? And it's very hard, it's a hard part for anybody's family. I just, I'm we're just in the beginning of it, but like I could see 10 years ago the first thing I did was go drink, right? And now the first thing I do is I I, I hold my sons. The first thing I do is I talk to my wife about it. The first thing I do is I like I, I go and find some research or something so that I can just dis- dispel my fear with knowledge because I know that that's something that whenever something scares me, the more I read about it, the more I learn about it, the easier it is for me for my mind to to uh, absorb it. And that was the same thing about meditation and mindfulness and addiction. When I first got into the space, it was like I need to know more. I just can't just take what they're telling me in the rooms. Rooms mm-hmm. save my life, but I got to know more than what they're telling me in there. Um, and which is why I've been able to speak about these things um, in the way that I do, not necessarily being a trained professional, but having worked professionally in the space for as long as I have. Yeah. What is your creative process? Procrastination and pressure. <laughs> 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 I, 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 and and it's, it's funny because I, I used to think of anxiety and procrastination as negative things in my life and um and things that i had to break and or be ashamed of if i couldn't and what i've come to realize about my anxiety especially now that it's managed my anxiety is the reason why i'm as good at what i do as i am because i've spent my entire life thinking that everybody in the room is looking at me I've spent my entire life thinking that everybody in the room is thinking about me mm-hmm. and trying to figure out why or what they're doing, looking at people's facial expressions, being able to read and understand when someone is not feeling well or is anxious. Like I really, I'm an empath in that way that I can, and, and not in like a mystical way, but in like, I have been paying attention to people's faces for so long that that anxiety is my superpower. And so now that I have it managed, I, I realize how to, how to use it. And the same thing with um, procrastination. I don't look at it as me being lazy anymore because someone would be like, yo, you wrote this poem last night? I'm like, yeah, I wrote it last night. And while I would love to make you think that like I was like this magical writer, I've been obsessing over this thing from the moment I knew I had to do this. And so I write now based off of primarily obligation I'll, i will book a gig i will um i love doing commission poems for for spaces and art that i believe in and, and social causes that i believe in because it allows me to look at those things through my own story and to find out where the intersection with housing is in my life and the intersection with um intersectionality and the intersection with race and the intersection with recovery like it allows me to find those things in my family and in my story and to write about them uh because yeah, it's it's not I'm not I'm not the kind of creative that's just always creating yeah. because everything in my life is creative, whether it's um, this conversation that we're having, the, the LMS voice, the business that I run, um, you know, all facets of that. Every problem I have figuring out what I'm doing for the next four hours after this between now and five o'clock is a creative venture for me. So now that creativity is not about necessarily being performative. It's about enjoying the process and the challenge of being alive. Uh, it, it, I enjoy watching it manifest in many different ways. 
Yeah, I love the enjoying the process when people get to that point where they can just enjoy the process. Yeah, I think that's a and big breakthrough for a lot of people. It's, it's a big breakthrough. What's unfortunate about it? And I, I speak about this in the movie Tipping the Pain Scale and and, and you know, having 15 years in youth development. It's not the unnatural way. The natural way is to enjoy the process. Like when I watch the difference between how my nine year old plays and how my two year old plays, my two-year-old could care less about the thing that he's making, right? Like, it'll be something. Like, it's not going to look like a castle, but he's going to call it a castle. But, like, he's amazed that he was able to get this thing to balance on this thing. That's crazy to him. And he enjoys that, right? That's the joy of it. He's not waking up in the morning thinking, like, if I don't build a castle today, my father's not going to think I'm good <laughs> enough, right? That's not what he's thinking. True. Um, but in society, like, in this I've noticed it's, they've gotten younger and younger. First, it was like 16-year-olds, you know, are so cynical than teenagers, and it was 13-year-olds. And now it's third and fourth graders who are starting to realize that they're in this product-oriented world, right, where everything, like if, everything is about the grade that you get. So it's mm -hmm. not about am I enjoying the learning process? How is this learning going to help enhance my experience as a human or help any of the people around me and our humanity? It's about whether or not I'm going to get the number or letter equal to survival, mm -hmm. equal to security, equal to what my parents think, have told me what success is. And that's because we don't have the language or the, no, we have the language. I, think, I don't think we have the audacity to allow our children and ourselves to be the best version of ourselves without that needing to be the best version of anything else, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I don't need to be the best poet. I don't need to be the best dad. I don't need to be the best partner in the world out of all the other partners. The only comparison should be, am I adding more value to my life today than I was yesterday? Yeah. Am I adding value to the spaces that I'm occupying um, and, and then how, how can I better do that? And as a guy who does not have a degree and I'm not sitting out here like saying drop out of school or whatever, but like the happiness in my life is no longer associated with, or with, uh, with the fact that I do or do not have a degree. Mm -hmm. The happiness in my life is in the things that I do and in the communities that I serve. And yeah. you can always do that. There's always somewhere, somebody to serve. There's always work to be done. There's always a way to get outside of yourself and, and, and give back to the world. And in that giving back, receive that beautiful selfish gift of, of joy from seeing joy being passed on. Yeah. One thing that me and my wife always remind each other of is comparison is the thief of joy. And when we're comparing ourselves, we are getting in that mindset of we got to yeah. make that A or we got to yeah. do this to think we're fitted in with society or whatever, but we it's, try and focus on just doing things that make us happy. It's a monster, man. And I, and I want to be clear to everybody who, cause I've now I've, I'm at, at the position that I'm in. Like sometimes it's hard for me to understand that I'm 41 and that I like am visual visible to people that I may never meet. Excuse me. People who have like seen my poem online or like watched the movie and you know, put me in that same category of, well, if he's there, all the things in his life must be well. And I, and I have people in my life that I do that with. And now because of the work that I do, I'm actually like starting to share space with them. Right. And I'm meeting these authors and these, uh, these folks. And I'm like, Oh yeah, thank God, man, you're a human too. 
right? Like yeah, you're, sure. you're, all, you're, yeah. you're stressed out with your family stuff. Like I'm stressed out with my family stuff. And yeah, you wrote a book that a whole people, bunch of people like, and that's great. But like, you know, you have to deal with aging parents and you have to deal with um, being whatever identity you are in this country and whatever that means to you. And you have to deal with money in the bank and all of this other stuff. And the more I worry about, and this is for everybody, the more you're worried about other people, the less you are attending to yourself, right? <laughs> like it's actually the greatest disservice you can do to yourself is spending a bunch of time worrying about what other people are worrying about. Um, and yeah, I love that. I love that. What, what are you doing with LMS voice? Well, thank you for asking. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure we get this in. Yeah, there. no, I mean, first and foremost, uh, I am not going to have enough time in this space to, really expand on that so i just want to say if we have touched minds whomever is listening in whatever way mm -hmm. and you're like oh something about that person's philosophy in the world um i i appreciate and admire go to the website because <laughs> you're the kind of person that i would want to work with right and so that same mentality is in my work and lms voice is a um, is was born of me being frustrated doing help work in a nonprofit space. And I the the amount of time and energy spent asking people for money to do good things uh, was getting very frustrating. And I decided that I would be better as a, I guess, uh, uh, an, uh, my own agent. Mm -hmm. out in the world and doing saying yes to the projects I wanted to say yes to. And and so for about a year or so, um, right after I got married, because that's when I married someone with health care, um, I was able to quit my job and and really try to do this thing, which was like just she called it the year of throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what stuck. And in that first year, I was doing uh, uh, workshops in schools. I was doing um, professional developments um, in DEI work and self-care. I, I have a certification in workspace mindfulness. And so I was trying all of these different things. And what I realized now in hindsight was putting together the foundation of the work that I'm doing now, which is we call narrative disruption. And so at LMS Voice, there are three basic spaces. Um, this LMS Storytellers, where we go out and work with corporations, nonprofits, any students, schools, individuals, even folks who are looking to harness the power of story. Yeah. Um, whether it's in a corporation where you feel like the people that you're working with don't understand the mission or can't attach their personal stories to the work that's being done, whether you're in a social justice movement and you want to take the stories of the people that you're serving and have their lived experience speak for themselves, we go in, we do workshops, um, and we help people articulate their story in a way that allows them to advocate for the things that are most important to them or market to clients in a way that is authentic, so on and so forth. Um, this LMS curriculum, which is a free curriculum website, this is based on the fact that I don't believe that knowledge should be sold. Um, and so we started this project, a friend of mine, Brian Hannon, a, a few years ago, 
built a website. There's about 130 pieces of free curriculum based off of contemporary poetry. So if you have young people who are into writing essays or poetry, there are these free workshops based off of contemporary artists. Additionally, there's poems that are recorded. Um, if you're just looking for inspiration or things you wanna to send to people to inspire them, or um, there are video workshops and we just contribute to this thing probably three or four times a month. And we just put work on there. It's absolutely free. You just go and you enjoy it and, and inter, interact with it as you will. And then lastly, there's LMS Studio, which mm -hmm. is the production arm of what we do, which is the thing that I'm most passionate about right now. So, you know, you'll have a consultant that can go in and do a, a PD with your folks and have this amazing experience, but there's no rec record of it, right? This, it's just, it just kind of happened and the people enjoyed it and you move on and the effect isn't there. So we have our production team, we'll come in, we'll record the event as it happens. And then those stories that we create, we record those stories in the moment too and offer those back to our clients or offer them back to the movement. Uh, we work with nonprofits who are doing um, actions and we go out and we film those actions and we help them tell the stories of the people that they're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a gr the greatest labor of love that I've had the opportunity to, to be a part of. And as someone who was raised on television and raised on images, like to be able to use this medium to make something that matters. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we do all of that stuff here at LMS Voice, all four of us. <laughs> <laughs> and, but to your point on the last one is you're, you're hearing more stories and you're being able to like create a platform for these people to hear their stories back or maybe possibly share their stories because oh, stories it, are so powerful. That, yeah, I'm, I'm happy you said that, that, that um, you, you put something in my mouth that I normally say and I'm, I'm happy. If I don't tell my story ever again, I'm gonna be all right. I know the power of it. There's a, a line in a poem that I have that people point out often, and it's um, in spite of a person's backstory, regardless of a person's backstory, we all have the opportunity to eventually become the primary authors of our character. And I now know the value of my own story and that I am now writing, I'm choosing how to respond to the things that have happened to me in my life and that I'm on a course. I want that feeling to be felt by everybody, right? It's not about making more poets. It's not making everyone into storytellers. I'm not trying to have a lot of competition professionally, but like personally in people's lives, it's important for them to understand their story, to face it, to see it, to, to be able to mold it, to edit it, to, to pull the moral from it that they want to pull from it and write the ending to their life that they want to write. That's, if I don't do anything else, if that's what I'm known for, you know, on my gravestone, Joseph, help us tell his story, tell our story. I will feel like I've had yeah. value in this life, man. And there's two things that I want to finish with. Mm -hmm. I want you to give a brief description of tipping the pain scale. Yeah. I mean, that is incredible. Yeah. And then I want you to pick a poem mm -hmm. and finish us off with that. Gotcha. Um, tipping the pain scale is a feature documentary directed by Jeff Riley and produced by Greg Williams, the team behind Anonymous People and Generation Found. This movie is, I think, exactly what we need right now. And by that, I mean, it is solutions oriented and it is hope oriented. There are so many places where people who 
love someone in recovery or love someone in active addiction or someone who is in active addiction or someone who is in recovery can go and see graphic retellings, imagery or otherwise of what that part of life is like, the losing, the, 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 the underbelly of things. There are not as many spaces that tell the story of recovery, tell the story of people who were on one side and fought to be on the other side and what they're doing with that lived experience. Mm -hmm. And so in this film, you have myself and it, it follows me as I do um, work with this organization called Rise Together out of Wisconsin and we're doing youth forward work and that's what I'm doing in the movie. And then there's uh, Darren Wilson, who is a Pro Bowl football player from, um, well, he's not from Vegas, but he plays for the LA. The Raiders. Uh, big, the Vegas Raiders. I keep yeah. getting that mixed up. The Vegas Raiders. You have Marty Walsh, who is now the um, uh, Secretary of Labor. You have Lauren, I can't think of her last name, but she is a congresswoman, um, a state congresswoman in Washington State. And then you have uh, Roz and, and Josh De La Rosa, who are two of the most amazing human beings I've ever had the honor to like share air with. Roz is on the streets of Kensington, Philadelphia, which is probably one of the hardest neighborhoods and one of the hardest cities in this country. And she is doing direct service work with what she calls her sunshines, these people who have kind of been forgotten by the rest of the world. And Josh is a cop. And I never thought I'd be like, yo, this is the cop that I really dig. But like, the he does policing the way that when people say defund the police what they're really trying to say is can we have some humanity like mm -hmm. can these people who are meant to protect and serve us protect and serve us in a way that is not necessarily leading with violence or a punitive nature can we have folks who have gone through training who have life experience and lived experience work in the neighborhoods and do this community policing and and have it actually be about healing the, the neighborhood and the space and the human as opposed to filling up our jails. Like he's the, what people are talking about in this program that he has up in Boston that he, that he was doing that's highlighted in the movie that should be repeated everywhere on the planet. Um, so yeah, if you're looking for something that's entertaining and inspirational and can start a conversation in your household or in your church or in your workspace, wherever, mm -hmm. visit tippingthepainscale.com. Right now, you can pay a little bit of money and have the rights to show the movie wherever the heck you want to. Um, and I know that in a few months, you will be able to get it um, on the streaming service nearest you uh, yeah. and, and share it with your, your, with your people. So and when that does happen, we'll make sure to let people know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll be <laughs> screaming from the rooftops, don't you know? Um, and so I think I'll end with Talk Ugly, if you're okay with that. Let's do it. I want to be clear. One of the, the great things about being able to, you know, go and speak places is that I can give context to things where like in competitions or over mics, I could not. And um, some people hear this poem and they hear, they think what I'm saying is there's, there's something that you can say that can save somebody. And that if you didn't, if you lost someone, then you didn't say all of the things that needed to be said. And that's not what this poem is about. Sure. This poem um that's a that was point. what i felt when it happened that was the guilt that came over me and that's where it, this poem was born but this this poem is about us living our convictions and being willing to love someone so much that we lose them as a friend to save them as a person um that we 
say everything we have on our heart, not because it's going to save them, but because we want them to know that they're important enough to hear everything that we have to say about why they should still be around. Um, and to understand that at the end of the day, grace will have its way and hopefully we will be strong enough to deal with whatever happens. And with that, I give you Talk Ugly. The last time I saw you alive, I wish I would have talked ugly to you. Said, put the straw down. No, I don't want to take another line. I should be writing them. My friend, you are a composer of music and magic. Instruct your limbs to serve a purpose greater than self-indulgence. Do not be fooled into thinking your pain has sharper teeth than anyone else's. I had a chance but said nothing because I was high. This is how I got started. A bottle of Jack and a mirror, memories and scissors, dreams drenched in ether, sliced by razors, potential rolled like $20 bills, numbing the feeling on the tip of my tongue that I or this tongue should be serving a greater purpose. In the last ditch attempt at self-assessment, I decided to look at my life through the eyes of loved ones for they see everything, especially the ugly, from years of drug use, from lying with to lying to angels, friends I had forsaken, taking so much more than I had given. I had streamlined self-centeredness into a science, but there was a righteousness there, a willingness to craft this illness through alchemy and poetry into a seer stone. But honestly, how could I speak ugly to you when I was yet to speak it to myself? In these nightmares of hindsight, there is no poetry, no alliterations to soften the blow. Some realities have no simile. Truth is like truth. How could I form my lips to call your suicide a tragedy when I left you alone in that room? Kept company by narcotics and a thousand ghosts draped in your disappointments. I can only imagine all the voices you heard, all but mine. Smear makeup on the disgust if you must. Trust the truth is seldom pretty but she is always beautiful. It is in times like these that I need you to please talk ugly to me. My pain needs it. Too many times we caress sadness when it needs to be shaken, torn from its place of comfort, forced to grow wings to survive. Don't just tell me I can grow up and be whatever I want. Tell me that whatever I want better be something I'm willing to achieve, that dreams will dissipate under the weight of addiction and that there is a distinct difference between living like a rock star and actually being one sometimes. No matter how many poems you've written, you can feel like a cokehead and a poser and nothing more. Fear not. We are all divinely flawed individuals, perfectly ugly. There's no point hiding behind pretty lies. We are the sum of the hideous scars that hold together the remainder of our pretty pieces. The last time I saw you alive, the last time I saw you alive, the last time I saw you alive, I wish I would have talked ugly to you. It would have been the most beautiful thing I never said. Joseph, you have an incredible talent. Thank you for what you do, your work. Thank you for joining me today. You know, I, I become speechless after listening to a number of your poems. And that's 
kind of how I find myself now. I mean, you, your talent is incredible. Your mission is incredible. And I mean, all I can do is encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. I, um, I'm going to thank you on, on, on two levels. Uh, it's been a long, someone asked me, how do I keep doing the same poems with that are so hard and, and topic and, you know, after a while craft kicks in and you can, you know, not phone it in, but it's kind of muscle memory. And, um, and that's good because if you're going to do it a lot, you don't want to feel it the same way you felt it the first time, every time. But, um, I've never been in a conversation like this where someone asked me about John in the way that you asked me about him. Like I was even struck by just the way you said his name casually. Cause I'm, I rarely hear anyone say his name. I, I actually took his name out of my performance of the poem. Um, and I just felt it in this moment in a way that I haven't felt it in a very long time. And I just appreciate, you know, it hurt, but that's part of my recovery, you know, knowing that I can feel things that hurt and still be okay. Um, so thank you for that. And then thank you for the show. I, I've heard a few of your episodes and the way you approach this topic is with care and, um, and, and humanity. And it's not done that way enough that I feel the need to call it out when it is. So, um, I'm, I'm going to be very proud to share this with people. So thank you very much. Thank you. And yeah, um, thank you. Yeah. Cheers. Man. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.